LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is John Michael Greer who joins us to discuss spirituality in an age of decline. If you do not consider yourself spiritual or remotely interested in spirituality, do not think that this is not for you. As industrial civilization continues to cascade into chaos, questions of meaning, purpose and what life really is will become more important than ever. The myth of endless progress tells us that modern material lifestyles can only get better and that science and technology can solve any problem. Despite this hubris, It is becoming increasingly clear that the material world is a place of limits and no amount of wishful thinking can avoid looming crises in energy, economy, environment and in society at large. History tells us that religiosity often re-emerges in times of strife, even if religions themselves often have little to offer the social problems of the day. Taking the twin perspectives of perennial spiritual teachings and cutting-edge quantum science, we ask what we can still accomplish and what there is to hope for. Hello and welcome, John, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Wonderful. Well, today, John, the title of our discussion is Spirituality in an Age of Decline. Uh, My recorded introduction will have given listeners some idea of what to expect. Just before we get started today, uh, for people who don't know, just give them a a brief bio, a little bit of a word about your your work in general. Okay, well, basically, um, the bio is, is simple enough. Um, born and raised in, in American suburbia, escaped from that hell of tedium um, at, at you know the usual age, um, have made a living for myself as a writer ever since, um, well, with various stints in, in service jobs to make ends meet when that was necessary. Um, I served 12 years as the the Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. As this suggests, I've been involved in alternative spirituality for a very long time. Um, I've also been, of course, very interested in the uh, decline and the future generally of, of modern industrial civilization. And so um, both of those have been things on which I've written books, uh, rather a number of books at this point. And I blog about them regularly as well on, on my blog at Ecosophia.net. Well, our chat today was inspired by I mean, issues I've been thinking about and, and broadcasting about for a long time, uh, which mm-hmm. is essentially the paradoxes and tension between the sort of disintegrating state of the of the world we see out the window and on TV and the way that we experience mm-hmm. day to day, and the spiritual or non-material dimensions on the, on the mm-hmm. other on the other hand, you know, the spiritual life, those who believe that. This world isn't all there is. And of course, mm-hmm. some of the cutting edge physics that's suggesting that this world isn't all there is. And, that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, and there's this mm-hmm. kind of, the, the tension is there because how, you know, how to resolve that, you know, with, on one hand, everything's falling apart. 
um, mm-hmm. you document this as well. Industrial mm-hmm. civilization is in decline. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the world, technological world we've all taken for granted is, is largely going away. Mm-hmm. And that brings a lot, of, a lot of despair. It results in, is currently producing a lot of conflict. And yet another view of reality is that, you know, there is no death really as we see mm-hmm. it or that perhaps cutting, cutting edge science is revealing that uh, maybe consciousness is fundamental and, and what we're living in here is some kind of shared dream. So, and a few of your recent posts kind of brought this up very much in my mind again and of course a few years ago when you took a, a bit of a slight turn a different emphasis in your blogging uh your new blog ecosophia or new as it was then uh, of course toward an ecological spirituality okay well actually there there are several ways to keep in mind first of all it's one of the classic um experiences anybody who's dealt with spirituality is that when people are comfortable they don't really pay a lot of attention to the to the spiritual world um when people are you know um prosperous when everything's going well you know who cares about the non-physical life is pretty good and and yet one of the recurrent events in history is that when things are going pretty well you know they're not going to do that forever it is one of the great delusions of our time, and it's one we're going to get into in quite a bit of detail as we proceed. This notion of progress as something that's going to make things better and better and better until we're all living in this this marvelous uh, you know, Star Trek future, zipping across the galaxy in a state of uh, blissful disconnection from anything but, but like what we want and what we get. Uh, you know, that's not the way the world works. And we're in the process of discovering the hard way, many of us, that the world does not work that way. The universe is not set up as a vending machine where we put in the coin and get back whatever we want. Now, spiritual teachers of West and East, of ancient and modern times, have been saying all along that life in the material world basically sucks. I mean, that's not the only aspect to it, but there are aspects of life in the material world that are always going to be unsatisfactory. There will always be dreams that fail. There will always be hopes that cannot be achieved. That's part of the nature of material existence. And if you want to understand why, and if you want to deal with the the realms in which this is less true, you need to turn inward. You need to turn toward the spiritual realm. I mean, every spiritual teaching teaches this. And yet, um, for the last for the last couple of hundred years, in the Western world, a lot of people have convinced themselves, no, no, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. It, on the one hand, you have the, the ordinary believers in, in progress who are saying, no, no, we, we've got it. We've got this completely under control. The world is our oyster. Everything's going to get better and better and better. You have um, pieces of, of uh, flagrant delusion like Francis Fukuyama's essay um, and, and the end of history that we saw a couple of decades ago claiming that uh, now that the Soviet Union had fallen, it was going to be, history was over. Um, basically, George Bush was the was the world historical personality that Hegel had predicted, and we were all going to live under these these marvelous, um, you know, liberal democracies, uh, quote, unquote, <clears throat> until the end of time. Uh, somehow that didn't work too well. But that's just it. It never does. On the other side of the picture, you have a kind of spirituality of the comfortable. 
which says God loves you and so he's going to give you everything you ever wanted. Or the universe. The universe is set up so that all you have to do is, is ask and all these wonderful things will tumble into your lap. Uh, we, we saw the, the, um, oh, the Secret by Rhonda Byrne. We saw all of that crazed literature insisting that the universe is set up like an internet, um, an internet store where you can order whatever you want and you never have to pay for it. That's not working very well either. And that's because both of those belief systems are part of a single delusion. And it's the delusion of, um, I think you probably have to call it the delusion of consumer egomania. The idea that um, you and your consumer desires are the only thing that matter in the cosmos. And you, the whole universe is set up one way or another, whether in a natural mode or a supernatural world, to give you everything you want. Phrased that way, it sounds pretty stupid. And it is. But it's amazing how many people fell into that trap, how many people convinced themselves that, you know, they ought to have everything they want just, you know, because they want it. The actual traditions of spirituality down through the ages clear their throat <clears throat> and say, no, that's not the way it works. The material universe is a place of limits. It's a place of hard limits. It's a place of painful limits. It is a place where you are going to die. Every single one of us is going to die. Okay? Like, like you know... Um, Flat on the ground, gasping for breath, the heart stops, the lungs stop. You know, um, call the hearse dead. That's a limit. It cannot be evaded, no matter how much we pr pretend that something's going to get us out of that. And that's the model in which all these limits function. Just as each of us will die, um, every civilization dies. Every nation rises and falls. It has its life cycle. Um, there are young nations. There are old nations. There are senile nations. And there are nations that are dead <laughs> and have, typically have been buried. And so, yeah, um, this, is, this is the world. This is the material world. This is the nature of life in, in the world of matter. The spiritual traditions of the world also go on to say there is another there are other worlds, there are other aspects of reality, other dimensions of being, and they're not foreign to us. We're actually, we actually exist in those as well in some sense. And it's because we have lost track of that, it's because we're so focused on the material world that we behave so stupidly so much of the time. And if we open our awareness to the reality of the spiritual world, if we become clear on the fact that we are we are amphibious, basically, we live in more than one world at the same time, then we can start getting a clue. Then we can start um, figuring out what the real important what the really important issues are in our lives, in our world, and we can start dealing with these things instead of just pretending that another round of consumer purchases is going to fix everything for us. And I suppose it's materialism in terms of physics and, and metaphysics and also materialism in terms of like uh, going on shopping sprees and uh, mm -hmm. thinking well, we get happy yeah, but, by acquisition that the, it's materialism that's caused this short-term narrow view. Because as you say, many spiritual and wisdom traditions have, have kind of gone back through millennia and, and beyond and kind of had mm -hmm. these perennial, this perennial wisdom that, that we seem to have lost sight of because... With, with all, despite all of our technological advancement, 
you know, the past to us is like a hundred years and the future is, you know, a few years in the ahead, you know, it's, it's just very, very narrow and it seems to discount, mm-hmm. discount all of these, all of this perennial wisdom of the ages. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that happens all the time. Um, every civilization at its peak falls into this kind of delusion, gets caught up in the idea that, um, you know, we know what's what, and what's what is about controlling the world and about, you know, um, being prosperous and happy and having everything we want. Uh, the Romans did it, the Egyptians did it, everybody does it sooner or later. And then that's when their civilizations usually fall. <laughs> and that's part of the, that's a normal part of the life cycle. And so, but yeah, it's material, the thing is materialism in the, in the scientific sense and materialism in the consumer sense are very closely related to one another. Um, and not necessarily the way that seems obvious. People will say, well, you know, it's because people get caught up in these, um, in the scientific worldview that they lose track of the spirit. No, it's the other way around. People get caught up in their material desires, especially when they think there's a reasonable likelihood they can fulfill them. People who are comfortable, people who are well-off, they very quickly turn to material satisfactions because they have access to them and because they're easy. Spirituality takes work while, you know, picking up the, picking up the phone or what have you and, and, you know, ordering something does not take work. And so, you know, we're human beings. We take the easy way out. A lot of us do. And so it's because you have a period of prosperity, it's because you have a period of material abundance, you have this tendency to focus on material acquisition, on, on, on greed, <laughs> you know, to use, to use the straightforward term. And because of that, people find ideologies that make that make sense to them. And that's where we have the sort of modern scientific materialism. It's, it's an ideology that justifies the consumer lifestyle. That's basically all it is, and you have, and the, or you have, you know, you have the scientific version of that. You have the pseudo spiritual version of it. I, you know, the the law of attraction, all this crap, uh, um, which is more of the same thing. Another ideology meant to pat you on the head and say, "It's okay. You can have. You you can eat. You know, an entire gallon of ice cream at a sitting. Um, it, you know, the, God wants you to feel happy, or whatever the line is." <laughs> Yeah, it is something along those lines, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess this is why often the spiritual life is seen as as one of, if not poverty, then certainly of uh, a sort of a certain amount of self denial. You know, mm-hmm. and we our image when someone mentions a monastery, we think of the the monks and in, in their living conditions and how it's very much. Uh, theirs is the spir- mm-hmm. spiritual life, and their material mm-hmm. material means are very basic indeed. It's mm-hmm. me- meant just to take care of their their mm-hmm. their basic needs. But they, they, I suppose, demonstrate at the very least that you, you, if you're in an extreme survival situation, maybe s- spirituality isn't important either. So that if we think of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs that you've certain basic needs mm-hmm. met, uh, then you can mm-hmm. you can turn to self development or spirit mm-hmm. whatever it happens to be. Yeah, well, the the, thing, the hierarchy of needs has it, it's not as ironclad as it may seem. I mean, among other things, there are plenty of there there are plenty of people who, for spiritual reasons, engage in extreme austerities. They don't meet those first needs, or certainly they need they meet them just enough to keep body and soul together, if that. So the hierarchy of needs is kind of an average, and 
one of the things that, that tends to get lost in, in, in discussions of monastic life, people tend to focus on the extreme cases. They focus on the really rigorous monasteries where you're, there you are sleeping on your bed of nails or what have you and, and eating um, one crumb a day. Or what, you know, Most monasteries are not that crazy. Most monasteries, you have you know you have a, a, a warm dry place to sleep. You have a you have clothes that do the, that do the job. You have um, you know maybe you have enough food to keep you healthy. You have a reasonable amount of work, which people also need to you know to stay healthy. And so your or common or garden variety monk back in the day, back when it was a serious profession for a lot of people, um, was usually in in good health and good spirits. The thing that sets them apart is that they didn't go beyond that. They said, okay, well, you know, here are the things we need to stay healthy and, and, and functional. Let's leave it at that. Let's take the rest of our time and put it to other uses. Now, the thing is, people do this all the time in other contexts. Think of an athlete. Your basic athlete leads a life of austerity in, in many contexts that's comparable to that of a monk, you know. There's, a, there's very often a strict diet. There's a lot of exercise and training. They're putting in hours a day at that, you know, whatever, whatever form of athletics they're practicing because they have to if they're going to compete. A monk is the same thing. He's just competing in a different field. And, and, and yet we treat the athlete's behavior as perfectly sensible. And the monk, oh, I couldn't imagine doing that. And that's because the athlete's, um, the goal the athlete is after, um, that, that success, that attainment, that, that competition, you know, the hope of eventually standing there getting a gold medal, we all understand that. It takes a little more work to realize that, again, there is a spiritual world that runs parallel to the material world that is, that is very close to us, but that most of us do not make the effort to perceive. And that to the monk, the monk has learned to perceive that, or at least is willing to trust the people that do. And the monk is competing just as fiercely as the athlete, except his competition is not one where, you know, he's going to be the one on the, at the gold medal and nobody else is. He's competing for everybody. Oh, some of my absolute favorite beers in the world have come out of monasteries mm -hmm. in centuries mm -hmm. gone by in, in Belgium and France. Oh, so, yeah. so, um, oh, yeah. You know that they they were not in uh, living completely uh, as you say ascetic lifestyles. By you know, that's, that's exactly. No, they didn't drink enough to get plastered, <laughs> but they enjoyed a good a good mug of beer. Okay, and that's just it. You can. Th this is something that people have learned over and over again. You can actually be a lot happier if you step down your material needs to the point where you're getting. You know, you've got what you need, and you don't. You're not trying to always get more, more, and more. That takes a lot of stress off right there. And then you set aside things that don't interest you, like you know, competing for status, and instead focus your time on things that do interest you. In the case of monks, um, prayer and contemplation and brewing good beer and you know, writing, uh, copying books in the scriptorium and doing other things relevant to, to their lives and to their spiritual lives. Well, you mentioned, a, you know, a spiritual dimension being really not, you know, us living in, being parallel, um, to our, mm -hmm. <clears throat> to this, um, five sense reality that some of us take to be all that there is. And I think mm -hmm. there, there are indications of the, uh, non-material dimensions, whether you're coming at this from a, a religious or mm -hmm. spiritual point of view or from a scientific point of view, there are indications mm -hmm. of it everywhere, but oh, yeah. we don't notice. It's a bit like, uh, synchronicities, for example, take mm -hmm. those 
that the more you look, uh, the more you, uh-huh. the more you pay attention, the more you notice uh-huh. these things. And I think a lot of us are, are, are not looking for it. We're not paying attention. We're not, we're not open to, uh-huh. uh, these indications. We're not open to the oh, signs yeah. that this is the case. Uh-huh. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, many of us are actively hiding from it. Um, sit down. This is something I've had the occasion to do, especially back when I was when I was head of of, of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. Um, I, got, I got to talk to a lot of atheists because they were they were really puzzled. They they had noticed that I'm you know I'm I'm scientifically literate. I've got a, quite a bit of knowledge about um, a number of sciences and things like this. And yet here I am as a member of a druid order, you know, teaching things like magic and ritual and, and religion. And how can I square those? So I would sit down and get talking to these people, usually guys, actually. I, I know they're atheist women, but almost all the ones I ever met, almost all the ones that approached me were, were guys. So we'd be talking, and I'd start pushing about ex- at exactly these issues. And in fact... They were terrified that there might be a spiritual reality. Now, partly this was the fault of certain kinds of religion. I, I, you've got you've to be honest about this. Um, some religious traditions have made so much of a point that God is looming down over you, watching everything you do, and cackling at the thought of squashing you like a bug and flinging you down into hell for all eternity. Um, and... If you're raised with this kind of religious viewpoint, which got with God as this kind of sadist just drooling over the prospect of punishing you for all eternity in, in, a, in a fiery torture chamber, uh, yes, your, your likelihood of ending up as an atheist is very, very high. <laughs> and it doesn't help when you uh, mix this with saying, but God loves you. That's why he's going to beat you up for all. You know, th- th- as Carl Jung said, this is, this is God as a child abuser. This is God as having the mentality of, of somebody of somebody who commits, who commits child abuse, who goes on about he, how he loves you and then beats the crap out of you. <laughs> um, obviously, I don't agree with any of that nonsense. But that's the way Christianity in particular and, and some other religions have been presented to so many people as a means of social control, and for various other reasons, they've got this, this notion of, you know, God as, as um, the ultimate eavesdropper, the ultimate CIA agent watching you constantly, waiting for you to make a slip so he can damn you for all eternity. And so you get a lot of people who flee from spirituality because it's been made to look so ugly to them. But also... On a broader level, outside of that, you also have people who simply, um, you know, the thought that there is a spiritual realm, the thought that there is a world that has its own requirements, that has its own laws and principles, that isn't whatever you want. That's scary, too. Especially when, as, as both as religious traditions do, you point out that that realm is inhabited. There are beings in it. And some of them are smarter than we are. If you've grown up in a worldview that says that human beings, in particular human beings who belong to the right class and, and are, you know, live in the right country, are the, are the zenith of humanity. They're the zenith of the universe. They're the goal of creation. Everything exists to make them feel good. That's a horrifying discovery. That there's this whole other world that doesn't care what you think of yourself. And so you get a lot of people nowadays who are terrified of spirituality. They're terrified of the thought that there might be a spiritual realm. And either they flee from it into some kind of materialism or atheism or what have you, 
or they busy themselves with these various pseudo-spiritualities that are all about, no, 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 the spiritual realm runs around, um, well, like those, those, those awful Victorian books about, you know, fairies in the garden scattering rose petals on, on, on the walk before the children come out, and it's all about, you know, it's all about us. And the discovery that maybe it isn't all about us, that maybe we're just one species in a very complicated universe. And that can be very crushing if you've been raised with this kind of cosmic sense of entitlement. Well, I used to attend a a humanist uh, group here in my home city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a once a month meeting, and it usually revolved around uh, a guest speaker. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we'd, uh, but not being... A humanist. I would have called myself an atheist at one point in my late teens and early twenties, but then I realized it was an untenable position. Then the humanism appealed to me for obvious reasons again mm-hmm. at that stage of my life. But anyway, mm-hmm. I went along to the humanist group because I was sympathetic to their worldview. I understand mm-hmm. why you've arrived at this. I can see that. Um, because I would have, I would have been on board completely at one point. But what we'd usually do after the speaker had finished is we'd uh, retire to uh, hostily, shall we say, and talk about the, the presentation or other, re- you know, related topics. And I found increasingly I was getting on to the sorts of conversations I suspect you were having with the, the atheists that you mentioned and the, the same terror of the possible reality of a spiritual dimension was there. You could see it on mm-hmm. their faces. You can, you could see it as they sort of like, you know, <laughs> dribbling into their beard with terror. <laughs> and and the, the sense I got was, uh, that was never made explicit, but was that they, the feeling was that this, if they accepted this or if this turned out to be the case, the reality of, of a spiritual dimension, it would have vast implications for how they lived uh-huh. their lives. It would, uh-huh. and, and that was, they wanted to consider that they were completely in control of their lives and that science, uh-huh. science and scientists were completely in control of the world or getting there. And they didn't like this idea, all, all of which you articulated. And it's been really interesting to watch one of their darlings, like someone like Jordan, well, not not someone like Jordan Peterson, but exactly Jordan Peterson, who appears to be on some kind of path to faith. If you've seen some of the interviews with him recently. Mm-hmm. Now, this is all uh, post his sojourn in Russia and after his illness. So he's obviously mm-hmm. in, a, in a fragile state. And a, a reader, sorry, a listener e- emailed me the other day uh, to ask me, was I aware that Paul Kingsnorth, prom- mm-hmm. prominent writer in the, Oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar exactly, with Exactly. Yeah, the Dark, Dark Mountain Project, some listeners may be mm-hmm. aware of, that he's converted to Christianity. And did I know about yeah. this? And I was, I didn't know that. So the, these, mm-hmm. are, I'm looking forward to having some interesting conversations if, uh, post COVID, we're able to return to having those humanist meetings. Yeah, well, I actually read the essay that Paul Kingsnorth wrote, and it was it, it, it was typical in a certain way. He had been involved in Wicca for a while, and um, I, I well, I have my own my own feelings about Wicca, which we don't have to get into. But he ultimately found it very unsatisfactory, and also found the the sort of materialist, um, lowest common denominator beliefs of our society unsatisfactory, and ended up converting to to Orthodox Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And that you know, I hope he finds it satisfactory. I think he had some things to, to some claims to make about magic in his in this essay of his about why he converted. Uh, he was talking about Wiccan magic, and you know, within within that limitation, 
I understand what he's saying, but he obviously there are things he there are things he never encountered, and there are things he clearly doesn't know. And I'll be addressing that uh, probably in a series of essays down the road, um, as he, he makes some points, but they're not necessarily as clear cut as he thinks. Well, in your own writing, uh, not only in your blogging, but in your many books, and this, mm-hmm. is, this is where I discovered your work. You were writing about the decline of industrial civilization. And it was only after reading some of your work in that area that I discovered how much you'd written about, you know, esotericism and the occult and, mm-hmm. and magic and magical traditions. When these, when you've brought these things together is when I've found, I find all your work interesting, but when you've brought these things together in whatever mm-hmm. context and in whatever sort of Venn diagram way that you've made them overlap, that's <laughs> when I found it most interesting. And that is okay. that which has largely led to me wanting to have this discussion. And mm-hmm. I don't know how you found it um, over the years with your readership, mm-hmm. but I've noticed on the comments on the blog posts, uh, some people weigh in uh, very knowledgeable and interested about the occult and, the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, mysticism, esotericism. Other people very concerned with the state of the world and, you know, where our mm-hmm. society is headed. Mm-hmm. Not not so many seem to be in the, in the overlap uh, of that Venn no. diagram. No, no, the overlap space, that, that was, I mean, there, there, there are a few other people who, who I know who are into that, but not that many. Um, it so happened that due to uh, those, those synchronicities that we're pleased to call random chance, I ended up fascinated with both of them from, from my early teen years on. And so one of the results of that is that as I've proceeded and as I've learned more about esoteric philosophy, as I've learned more about spirituality and magic and occultism, and as I've learned more about um, the sh- what's going on in industrial society, more about economics, more about energy and the environment, and as I've watched our civilization um, doing what it's been doing most of my life, that is to say, in going through the early stages of decline, it's been very clear to me that those are not... Yes, you can talk about them separately, but they also, there's a lot of overlap there. That Venn diagram, the overlap between those two covers a lot of space. If we consider spirituality as the realm of, as the realm from which purpose and meaning and value are generated, that's where, you know, that's where we get our sense of purpose, purpose and meaning and value from the spiritual realm, um, whether we admit this to ourselves or not. And if we consider the industrial society as an expression of our senses of purpose purpose and meaning and value, as how we've allowed that sense of ourselves to to lead us to build a society. Um, You can see very clearly how the flight in first into a very materialistic religious viewpoint, then increasingly in, you know, step by step into straight out scientific materialism or straight out consumer materialism and ultimately their fusion, um, made the, the arc of peak and decline that we're now, that we're now going through inevitable. That that's, that was a driving force. The fact that we looked at the world you know, there's there's a very famous essay 
by Lynn White Jr. that points this out, the, the historic roots of our ecological crisis. When we stopped looking at the world as a sacred thing, when we stopped looking at, at ecology as, as an expression of spiritual relationships in, uh, expressed in material form, and started looking at the world as simply raw material that we could do with whatever we wanted, and a dumping ground, it didn't matter, just, just, just dump that stuff in the river, who cares? You couldn't do that in ancient times because the idea was the gods care, the spirits care, the river is a being and it will revenge itself on you. Okay? And now we dismiss that as, as so much nonsense and then try to deal with the fact that people downstream are dying of cancer. That's the revenge of the river. It's just taking a different form <laughs> than, than, than a straightforward mythology, mythological approach would, would suggest. More generally, the more we have abused the environment, the more the environment has lashed back at us. And it's not getting any better. And so right there, you can see how the things that people were talking about in ancient times, the things that are expressed in all these, these myths of nature, these were realities. These are realities expressed in symbolic form, sure. But if you understand the form, you can go, oh, they're saying, don't be an idiot when you're dealing with the cycles of nature. Let them flow. Don't cut down all the trees. Leave sacred groves in various places so that you know you have enough enough of a working ecosystem that your your crops don't start to fail, and so on and so on and so on. So we have the movement away from that kind of sense of the sacred in nature into first a religious viewpoint that says nature is just this, you know, just a, it's, it's just a, a collection of objects created by God for us to abuse as we wish. Not something you've heard from, from every um, pulpit, but embarrassingly often. And then we get into the, um, the, the one step further, where it's, well, there, is no, there was no creator. This is, we're all here by random chance. Here's all this stuff. There's no reason not to use it. And now, as industrial society cracks and shudders under the impact of its own mismanagement of the environment, we have people beginning slowly to say, oh, maybe all those old traditions about, you know, keeping the cycles of nature sacred and not cutting down all the trees, and maybe that was actually trying to tell us something. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.